Hi, and welcome to GCs in the House, a podcast spotlighting general counsels. I'm your host, Lena Guo. In my conversations with GCs, we discuss how they got in the top legal seat, obstacles that they had to overcome along the way, and how they are tackling new challenges. My guest today is Anne Munson-Steins, Executive Vice President, Chief Legal Officer, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Nordstrom. Anne earned her JD from UCLA and began her legal career as a laborer and employment attorney, first at Dinsmore and Scholl, then at Michael Best and Friedrich. She began her in-house journey at Overnight Transportation, then transitioned to Macy's before joining Nordstrom. In our conversation, Anne talks about how she knew at a young age that she wanted to be an attorney. She also discusses the factors that she considered when deciding to take on her first in-house role, how her curiosity and desire to learn about the business helped shape her career, and the challenges that she sees young lawyers facing today. Now to the conversation with Anne. Hi, Anne. It's so nice to speak with you again. Hi, Lena. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you on your podcast. Really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Absolutely. I was so excited when you agreed to be a guest on my podcast, and I'd just love to have listeners hear about your background and your career journey and what has led you to Nordstrom. Uh, So to begin, will you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what led you to a career in the law? I grew up just about everywhere. My um, father's job took us all around the country. So uh, I was born in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. From there, we moved to Cleveland, then to uh, St. Louis, then to East Peoria, Illinois, then to Houston, Texas back to Cincinnati, and throughout that period of time, growing up different places, got to meet lots of different people, live in big towns, small towns. Um, the, the What really led me, though, to thinking about a career in law, I was very fortunate that my dad thought it would be good for all of his children to see what hard work looked like. And so he um, dragged me to work one day, long before they had bring your child to work day. Uh, (laughs) He took me to his his job and he was in human resources. And one of the things that he did was represent his company. At the time he worked for Kroger, it's a great big, Uh, grocer. And one of the things he did was handle grievances and arbitrations for the company. And uh, I sat through an arbitration proceeding very quietly. And at the end of the day, my dad said to me, well, what do you think of your your old man? Were you impressed with with how I handled things? And uh, I said, well, you are okay. But I really liked what the man at the end of the table did. And he said, oh, well, that's that that gentleman is an arbitrator. And uh, most arbitrators are lawyers. So if you thought what he did during the day was interesting, you should think about going to law school. At the time, I was in the fifth grade. And I thought about it for a couple of years, but I had had declared in the seventh grade that I was going to law school and I was going to be a lawyer. And I stuck with that. So you knew at a young age that you wanted to be a lawyer and you ended up practicing labor and employment law. After your time in private practice, what led you to go in-house? Well, uh... I have been working really hard in uh, law firms, and that's no surprise to anybody who's worked in a law firm. 
And I did choose labor and employment. It was, uh, I like people and I like dealing with issues, uh, uh, you know, that involve people. So after practicing, uh, I was a labor and employment litigator and I did, I actually did both sides of that work had negotiated uh, contracts and handled arbitration proceedings and grievances, uh, but also the employment side and had done uh, a few trials. And um, I was getting ready to move. I'd been in private practice with two different firms for about seven and a half years. And at that time I was married, you know, my husband and I decided uh, we were going to move. And one of the partners, uh, the law firm I was with, came in and said, hey, did you see this ad in um, the National Law Journal? Looks like someone in Richmond, Virginia, um, it's a blind ad, but they're looking for a labor employment lawyer. Thought you might want to apply. And so I started thinking about it and I thought, well, yeah, this would be the perfect time if I were gonna, cause I was moving, didn't wanna do a third law firm. And I thought, well, yeah, I'm gonna apply. And so I applied not knowing who I was, what company I was applying to. And um, I then packed up, moved to Richmond. We were in temporary housing and took us a little bit to find a house. I moved into a house and the day the landline got turned on, that was back when people actually had landlines. <laughs> the day the landline got turned on, my phone rang and it was the general counsel of a company called Overnight Transportation. And he introduced himself and said, oh my gosh, I've been tracking you down through, and this is back when people would hand out people's phone numbers and last known addresses. And he had been trying to track me down since I'd lived in Milwaukee to find me. And um, he said, I can't believe I've located you. I want you to come in for an interview. Your resume's perfect. And so um, I did. I then went in for an interview and he made me an offer on the spot. And that's what led me to going in-house. Wow. It's almost unheard of this day and age to have a GC track down a candidate, especially via phone. What, I mean, after you had just moved and you applied to this blind ad, what led you to take this chance to join to join this company? Yeah, I, I was really fascinated by what was going on at the company at the time. They were engaged in what was called or what is called a uh, corporate campaign. And basically the unions, uh, the unions trying to organize you or put you out of business. And I thought, wow, that's going to be a really interesting time to be at that company. And it turned out that it was. It, it meant that the subject matter that I knew the most about was going to be something that was very much the focus of, um, of business uh, leaders, the CEO. So I knew I was going to have the opportunity to interact with lots of people at the company, not just uh, the small legal function, the lawyers and the GC, but the business people. And I it was one of the reasons I wanted to be a lawyer. It's, it's the thing I enjoyed most when I was in private practice was interacting with the business people and trying to help them solve problems. And so I thought, well, this is the perfect time to move in-house, especially at this company, because they're in the middle of what what's going to feel like a crisis. I'm going to be able to uh, spend a lot of time talking and talking to the business people, learning about the business, the operations. And that's exactly what that experience wound up being. I wound up doing really interesting um, pieces of work that, quite frankly, weren't legal in nature. 
because uh, they needed help on so many different fronts that um, I wound up helping them draft operational procedures, um, thinking through the things that would resonate and matter most to employees. So helping write employee communications, um, doing a number of things, helping them come up with an audit process that would ensure that the work environment was something that people would appreciate and enjoy. And so it really um, wound up being a terrific opportunity and window into what, how do companies work? How do, what do companies value? What do companies think about when they weigh policy and when they weigh things uh, where they're going to spend their money. So it was a really interesting way to learn about all kinds of things like how businesses run, budgets. Um, so it, it, it wound up being just a terrific time um, to learn about a company. And it's what convinced me I'd made the right decision. I just, I felt so part of a team embedded with the business folks. Um, and I, I just knew, even though I was working harder, believe it or not, <laughs> inside than, than, than I had been at the firm. And, and, and uh, I was working crazy hours, 80, 90 hours a week, but I loved it. I, I loved being that um, engaged. Wow. And who said that going in-house is is a change in getting work-life balance? And it sounds like early in your in-house career, you already knew that you wanted to interact with the business and, and really be embedded in the business. So how did you end up in the retail industry? So that's a funny story. It was, I, <laughs> I kind of feel like this, it's going to sound like I I'm sure by the time we're done, Lena, it's going to sound like um, there's a theme going and it's just <laughs> what I'll call sheer dumb luck. So I was toiling away at my job, enjoying it immensely. And someone I had worked with in private practice, she herself had gone in-house at a company called Federated Department Stores. And uh, she was a lawyer, an employment labor and employment lawyer, and she was working in house. But her husband worked for Procter and Gamble, and they had decided as a family to take a role overseas, that in Japan. And um, she called me up and said, "Hey, my boss said I can't leave until I give him three recommendations." And I, I want your resume. And I said to her, well, I'm not moving. I love my job. And she said, I know, I know. Just give me your resume. <laughs> I, I'm trying to I'm trying to do what my boss said so I can get the heck out of here. Give me your resume. That's a smart boss. Yeah. So, yeah, think about it. H help me hire your replacement. Yeah. So she did. I sent her my resume. She gave it to him. And I was um, sitting at work late one night, my phone rang and it was her boss, the then deputy general counsel, who um, said, introduced himself. And he, he, he was, I knew right away I wanted to meet this, this gentleman because he said, when I answered the phone, um, he said, I hear the best Korean food on the planet is in Villa Hills, Kentucky. And that's a suburb of Cincinnati. And that's where my mother was living. And, and of course, it made me laugh. <laughs> and, and I said, you're right. That is the best Korean food on the planet. How did you know that? And so anyway, we wound up having this really terrific conversation that had absolutely nothing to do with work. And uh, and then he said uh, to me, um, uh, 
you know, thanks for chatting. I'll be in touch. And about a week later, he called again and said uh, something else that was funny. But long story short, he wanted me to come interview. And and my friend had told him she's not interested in moving again, that she, you know, she's only been in her current role, which she loves, for about a year and a half. And uh, he convinced me to fly home because this job was in Cincinnati just for an interview. And if it were, if if for no other reason, it would be an opportunity to visit with my folks for the weekend. And so I did that. And once I got there and I met all the people, I knew that I really needed to come and work for this company and for with these people. So that's what then took me to Federated Department Stores. And Federated Department Stores was a holding company of a bunch of department stores around the country. And so depending on what part of the country you lived in, they owned things like Macy's, Lazarus, Riches, Goldsmiths. They owned um, Bullocks. They owned um, um, Burdines, the Bon Marche. Uh, eventually, they went on while I was there to move all of those nameplates over to the Macy's nameplate. And they're and then ultimately changed their stock exchange listing to Macy's. Um, so that's how I accidentally fell into retail. And I thought I'd only be there five years. And now, two decades later, uh, it sounds like you have a history of being pursued by being being um, by being pursued by by who would be your eventually your future boss. So over the course of your in-house career, how were you able to gain positions of increasing responsibility? Well, I you know I would say um, what what was true for me in my early career at in law firms, and then what's been true, a constant truth throughout my career, I'm very willing, I think it's because I'm intellectually curious, very, into, most lawyers are very intellectually curious. I'm always willing to take on projects, work assignments that a lot of people aren't willing to take. Um, they may not be the sexiest project, um, but because it might be something I don't know anything about, I'm willing to take it because I want to learn. I want to learn something new and different. I just think it keeps you sharper, focused, and when you take that and translate that to a company, if you take work that's outside of your subject matter expertise it just forces you to learn something else about the business and so pretty soon you wind up being very knowledgeable about how the business runs what's important to the business and i think it just makes you a better legal advisor it, it's something very symbiotic about about the more you know about the business, the better lawyer you become. And so I think because of that, um, folks were always willing to think of me as someone, you know, opportunities are not um, necessarily linear. So when opportunities to advanced my career became available, they weren't within my area of expertise. So legal functions, if you're going to manage other lawyers, uh, the first step is usually you manage lawyers within your subject matter expertise. And then the next step is because you happen to be there, you wind up taking on other areas that you're not a subject matter expert in. And I think because I'd always demonstrated a willingness and a, and a real curiosity, it's why things just started coming to me, if you will. And my 
my base of knowledge, my the things, the kinds of things that I handled just kept growing and changing. So it became clear I was flexible and um, had capacity, I guess, to scale. And, and so I think that was my secret to advancement. I wish I could say, Lena, that it was a really well thought out, oh, here's my formula for success, but it, was, uh, it wasn't. It was just taking on new things, doing a really good job, being a constant learner, listening, and trying to problem solve. And that that definitely makes sense. And 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 for junior, more junior in-house attorneys who are trying to figure out how to best use their time and how to stand out in terms of taking on some of these projects, how are you how did you decide whether a project was worth worth your time as opposed to just busy work that was going to get have you overlooked? And what were some what are some of these projects that others weren't willing to take on that that you decided was worth your time to take on? Well, some of it is busy work. I mean, every job out there, including the chief legal officer, well, there is busy work. There's work. It's ministerial. It's administrative. Um, and you have to do those things and do them well, because that's the running of, you know, the the, the function. Um, some would view that as busy work, unattractive work. It's not the sexy big case or the big project. Um, so I think that I think busy work gets underrated. Certainly in law firms, there are, you know, there is work that that may not lead to developing your own clients or getting the big case. And that's true in legal legal departments. But I think showing showing that you're willing to take those things on and and treat them like they're real work and do not just an okay job but a really good job, then people trust you to <laughs> to take on some of the bigger, meatier projects. And if someone is taking advantage of you and giving you only you know the busy work, eventually you will learn that and you then you should decline that work if they are not occasionally give you know saying helping you develop saying hey why don't you join me for that client meeting hey i'm not going to be there but why don't you go in my place hey why don't you take this project from me and run with it if that's not happening, then you're then it might be that you need to think about lessening um, your willingness to take things from from someone like who isn't willing to help develop you and and then take work from someone who is. Um, I think that's the best advice I could give someone in terms of how to size it up. Uh, when I think about there was a, a project early in my career that I think a lot of people would have said was busy work. And it was, I was at a place that was interested in Six Sigma. And I don't know if you remember back in the day, you know, there were a lot of companies that rolled out Six Sigma, green belts, black belt programs. <laughs> yep. And the legal function wanted to be part of that. Nobody in the legal function wanted anything to do with it. And you had to be plucked out of your job and go work on these things. And I was the only one who would do it. And I did it. And I wound up taking what I learned from it and applying it. This is going to sound so not sexy. Uh, applying it to our billing process. And we wound up as a result of that. This is way back in the day moving the entire function to electronic billing, which back then when we did it was new and different. And wow, really? Um, but that wound up getting me noticed by the CFO and others outside of the apartment. Like, who's this? What? A lawyer? What? You know, 
Um, so my point there is sometimes things that seem really um, not attractive, if you do a really good job with them, people do notice that. That's a great story. Thank you, Anne. Talk about having a really meaningful impact on the business. So looking back, what were some of the challenges that you faced as a young in-house attorney? Well, I, I'm going to date myself. You know, when I started practicing law, <laughs> uh, women weren't allowed to wear pantsuits. They weren't allowed to wear pantsuits to court. And it was quite, uh, it's back when I was in a law firm, it was quite um, quite a big deal when I walked into our law firm wearing a pantsuit. And I will say, I had great support from many a male partner who agreed it was ridiculous that women couldn't wear pantsuits. So I tell you that story when I say I do think it can be really difficult for um, for women. I think it can be harder for women to have the same opportunities as some of their male counterparts. And it's not because I think people are bad are ill-intended. It just has to do with sometimes comfort level. I think for me, because I had grown up in a house with an older brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister, I was super comfortable navigating um, being um, one of the guys. And by that, I just mean super comfortable talking about sports which, you know, I'm not a big sports fan, but if that's what you want to talk about, okay. Um, and I think because I was super comfortable dealing with um, lots of men, and back then in legal functions, there were lots of men, not a lot of women. Um, it made everybody else comfortable. And um, I think that that helped a lot break down some of the artificial barriers. I think things are a, a, a lot different today than when I was a young lawyer, but I do think that there's still, uh, we're navigating a lot right now about um, how to make sure that everybody has the same opportunities that we're fair and equitable in how work is assigned and how um, opportunities are awarded in, in workplaces. And everybody's trying, I think, hard to do the right things, but things have become so politically charged that I worry a little bit that, that it's hard to even be authentic and have serious tough conversations because how politically charged topics have become. Um, and I, I, I think it's, it's um, hard for young lawyers to get the feedback that they really need and perhaps even harder for young lawyers of color and women to get the feedback, the honest feedback they need, because I think that people now are uh, so concerned and so careful that they won't tell you what they're really thinking and that they don't tell you things that you need to hear. And I worry a lot for um, what that then translates into if we're not giving the same feedback, the hard feedback that we would to attorneys of color and women uh, because we're worried that someone's going to accuse me of being um, racist or they're going to accuse me of being sexist. Therefore, I won't say anything. Mm. So that is the challenge I think young lawyers today may be facing. Thank you for sharing that. 
And it certainly sounds like managers such as yourself have a very tight rope to walk. How do you how do you wrestle with that and to find the balance of giving the feedback that your members of your team need while also making sure that it is it comes across as constructive criticism? Well, I, I don't I I guess I don't I I think I just have always believed that you should be open and transparent. And I do try to be constructive uh, and direct and uh, with everybody, male, female, doesn't matter, you know, your who you are. And by the way, I've been the beneficiary of some very tough criticism from white males. And I think the reason I continued to receive that really tough criticism that was so helpful to me is because I thanked people for it. And I tried to be responsive to that um, critical feedback about my work. Um, and, and I think that's the way that we continue um, making sure that people receive the developmental feedback is by trying to, to, to be constructive, to not being fearful of it, to be um, equally willing to develop anybody. And if, if you have someone who's receptive to the feedback and indicates they're receptive to it and, will, and wants the feedback, then it shouldn't matter to you, you know, what they uh, look like, what they, um, what demographic they fall in, um, give the feedback and, and people will appreciate it and they'll continue to grow. You'll, you'll have the privilege of watching them, you know, flourish in their careers. And I guess that way all boats rise, Lena. Can you think of an example of feedback that you received from a manager, feedback that might have been difficult to stomach at first, but you look, but you took to heart and something positive came out of it? Sure. I can, I can give you one that, you know, <laughs> that uh, is a simple one and, and may uh, seem like a simple one, but I was so grateful for it. Uh, was I was asked because I'd been doing a lot of work for a particular partner in a law firm to he, he was hosting a day of um, continuing legal education. Well, it wasn't really CLE. It was really training HR people at this big company he was doing a day worth of training and the sessions were one hour sessions. But because I had worked on the materials for him, he wanted, uh, he did the first session and then he wanted me to conduct the remaining sessions. Now he was there um, and would chime in. But after uh, my first session, he walked up to me. We had a 15 minute break. He walked up to me and he said, Ann, do you realize when you're nervous, you say, um, a lot? And uh, I stopped counting at 38 ums in your presentation. It's really distracting. I'm going to count all your ums for the rest of the day. Now, some people could have been really offended by that. I didn't realize I was doing it. It made me even more nervous as a young lawyer. But I decided, oh my gosh, here's this partner. He's counting my ums. When he, just as he was about to walk off, he said, try this. Pick up a glass of water if you feel like you're going to say um. Look down at your notes, turn a page, even if you don't need to, if you think you're going to say, um, 
look away from where you were staring if you think you're going to say, um, that's what I used to do. And so I did those things. And at the end of the day, he walked up and he gave me the count of ums for each session. The good news is, Lena, by the end, the last session, I only had one. Wow. I'd worked myself down, but I was so appreciative. That's back when you didn't record people. Like, you can't go back and watch yourself, right? Nobody did that back then. But I'm so appreciative that he pointed that out to me. And I thanked him for it. And he, from that point on, went out of his way, whether it was a brief I'd written, to bleed all over it, to give me really pointed feedback. And I just appreciated knowing and having that information. And so, yes, it made a big difference, I think, in improving how I spoke in proving my writing, but it's because um, he'd given me some direct feedback and I tried to work on it. I tried to go back and work on it. So that's a really simple example, but what if he'd never said anything to me? I would never have known that that was a nervous tick of mine or it would have, would have been a lot later that Maybe someone else would have pointed it out to me. Maybe I would have heard myself in a recording and realized it. Uh, but I was so appreciative of it. And I do think it made a big difference in, in my growth as someone who could speak and do, go, to, uh, go on to do other things. Um, so that's a really, really simple example. Talk about a high pressure uh, situation. And it sounds like this partner was quite invested in your professional development in no small part as well to your ability to just be open minded and receptive to these type of uh, to these type of criticisms or suggestions. At, so at what point did you know that you you wanted to become a general counsel? Well, you know, I had been taking on increasing um, areas uh, of responsibility, and I was very fortunate that deputy general counsel that hired me into federated department stores, and then eventually he left to go be a general counsel. And the general counsel, I'd done a lot of work direct because the deputy GC um, uh, understood that as part of my growth and development, it was really important that the general counsel have an opportunity to see me work and work with me directly. Um, uh, he also spent a lot of time investing in me, did a lot of work for him, with him. Uh, and so he let me see, I think, the good, bad, and the ugly of, of what the general counsel role looked like. And he continued to very directly work with me to develop me, and, and eventually I became the deputy GC. And it was funny, the closer and closer I got to the GC role, I, I started questioning whether I really wanted to be the GC. Because the buck does eventually stop with someone, and, and in the legal function, it, it's going to stop with the chief legal officer, the GC. And you also start seeing things, um, the parts of the job that aren't legal in nature. And yes, I enjoy being a business person and using the business side of my head, but I also started realizing, ooh, there's a lot of decisions, big, big, heavy decisions that will rest squarely on my shoulder. So 
there was a point in time where I started saying, nope, I'm changing my mind. I don't want to be the GC. And I was fortunate that the GC um, said, nah, yeah, you do. And mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're super ready for this job. And so I felt like when good fortune came knocking again and Nordstrom um, at, you know, a recruiter asked me to interview for the Nordstrom GC job. I felt like I was super prepared and that I would have a very realistic understanding of what that entailed. And uh, so it was because of the encouragement and investment and mentorship and championship of the deputy GC and the GC um, and other uh, people I had worked with, like the CFO, you know, their encouragement meant the world to me and uh, made me think, yep, yeah, I can do this job. And so when I landed at Nordstrom, I felt super prepared I certainly wasn't prepared for the things that landed in my lap almost as soon as I walked in the door, like COVID, a pandemic. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I felt like I'd been sort of my whole career, whether I knew it or not, putting the foundation and building blocks in place that would help me be a really effective general counsel. You've had other GC opportunities before Nordstrom's. So how did you know that Nordstrom was the right place for you? Well, I know lawyers don't like to think about things like um, life outside of their jobs. Lawyers are just wired to be, I think, A personalities, you know, A type personalities. and. Uh, I was very fortunate that I had a terrific spouse and two lovely children that kept me anchored and uh, remembering that there are more things to life than than just work. And so there were yes, there were other opportunities to to move and be considered uh, for a GC role, those, I think, I think luck has a lot to do with it. Those came at times where it would not have been good for uh, my spouse or for one of my children, uh, because where they were in school, to move them. And so, in a way, putting my family first um, helped me quickly decide those opportunities, the trade-off wasn't worth it. And I had one opportunity, this was back before you did things like hybrid work situations and work remotely. I had one opportunity where, where uh, folks said to me, well, you can fly to this city where they were, you know, and work Monday through Friday and then fly home on the weekends. And I thought, gosh, do I really want to live that way? Can I be really, really happy? And I don't think I, if I'm not if I'm not happy at home, I don't think I can be happy in my job. So I turned that one down, too. It just, um, I was interviewing for a couple of different GC roles when the Nordstrom one came around, and it was sort of the perfect timing um, in terms of where my children were in, in school, the, where my spouse had um, uh, retired at that point. And so it wound up just all coming together at the right right time for me uh, to make that move and, and take the role. As you said, lots of luck and good timing. 
And given that you had seen the good, the bad, the ugly of being a general counsel or CLO, was there anything about being in the top legal seat that surprised you? I think what surprised me most, I, I knew this, I'd seen this, but I think what surprised me most is how much of the role is focused on giving good advice, helping problem solve, even when there's not a legal issue. Not everything that gets to the C-suite, in fact, most things, the, the biggest problems that the C-suite is are trying to solve are not legal. They're operational. They're uh, reputational. They're not legal. And I think I was surprised by how much of my time would be devoted to being a sounding board and just helping add a different perspective to a business issue and business problem. So that was my biggest surprise. And, and my biggest surprise in terms of what would be valued the most, or at least, you know, at Nordstrom, my counterparts tell me all the time what they value the most about me in my role is, you know, they'll say things like, we know you're a crackerjack lawyer. We know you're a fabulous lawyer. What we love, though, is the way you analyze business problems and help us think those things through. So that's what they value the most out of their CLO, which I think is was a big surprise to me. Hmm. And that's I'm sure that's what you meant when you've said to me in the past that you are a business person first and a lawyer second. And for someone who's coming up through the ranks and wants to have that business acumen, how how did you learn that? How did you train yourself? And how does someone become better at being a problem solver for the business as opposed to just looking at things from a legal lens? Well, I think it goes back to just being intellectually curious, really taking the time to understand how a business operates. You, even if you're in a law firm, you can do that by taking, you know, the work that you're taking, it's probably associated with a company. And if it is, learning, going out and reading about the industry, learning about what it is the company does, and then take it a notch further and ask questions about business philosophy. Where are they, their business strategy? Where are they trying to take the business? I think just being really curious and, and again, maybe taking work outside of your subject matter expertise, that kind of forces you to learn not just a, uh, another area of the law, but another facet of, of a business. I think that's what helps sharpen your business acumen. I also think being never being too proud to say, wow, I got to go back to school and learn some things. So by the time I became the deputy GC, I felt like I needed, yes, I did well in my business-oriented classes in school, but I felt like I needed almost a, a finance for dummies class. And so I took two weeks to go and, and take an executive finance class uh, really, it was finance for dummies um, at Columbia, and and was willing to in you know invest in that in myself in that way. So some might have said, "Oh my gosh, you're already the deputy GC. You already know a lot about the business." Yeah, I did, but I wanted to be better, you know. I and and I still do things like that where I'm willing to say, "Yeah, I should be sharper on that. I should know more about that." Um, and willing to read a lot and 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 perhaps you know take a class in something. 
so that you know a little more about it, not to become an expert at it, but so that you know something about it. So as you said, just continuously being intellectually curious and wanting to challenge yourself has really stoked the fire to, to your professional growth. How has being an attorney in the retail industry changed since you first joined? Oh my goodness. When I first joined the retail industry, everything was bricks and mortar. There were a handful of companies that were, were starting their internet businesses, their online businesses. And those online businesses were treated like they were important, uh, but not the most important thing in retailing. And now, you know, fast forward to now, and then there was, sorry, back up, there was a period of time where everybody was saying, oh, brick and mortar stores, who wants those? They're dead. Everybody wants to do, you know, wants to buy things online. But that's where the consumer is heading. And it feels like in the more recent last few years, people are recognizing, actually, you kind of need both. You need, you, you know, think about even uh, grocery stores. Buy online. Click, click and pick. You pull in and they put the groceries in your trunk if you want. But, but if not, you can come in the store. Same thing in apparel, you know, which is where I am. Um, people, some people just want to replenish, you know, their socks and shirts and they buy the brands they know fit. And so they just want to shop it online and have it show up at their door. Um, but other people really want to go in and try things on, feel the fabrication. Um, it's important to them. They see it. They want to. They certainly would prefer to return to a store, do their returns to a store. People just got exhausted by having to stick things in a box and, you know, take it somewhere and and mail it back. Or, you know, they they're just, they were tired of the pro proliferation of boxes, a lot of folks. So there's sort of this interesting thing that's happening in retailing where really the consumer is is who who dictates what and consumers now want to shop every which way they possibly can so supply chains technology functions that when i first started were viewed as back of house you didn't spend a lot of money on those things you now invest a lot of capital in those things so that you can be but responsive to what your customer wants. So the business of retailing has certainly gone through a metamorphosis, which also means the legal function in order to track right along has, has also gone through a metamorphosis. When I first started working for a retailer, the most important area of the law was real estate. Why? because stores either had to lease their space or they owned they owned their stores. That's really changed in terms of the breadth of skill sets you need in a legal function today. It certainly sounds like the pandemic has forced legal departments and companies, even in real retail, especially in the retail space, to adapt and adapt again. How big is your team now? And what are some of the challenges that you and the team are facing coming out of the pandemic? Uh, I have a, a small but mighty team. Um, my The function, is, when I first got to Nordstrom, the function was uh, broken up a bit. There, there was a workers' comp team, a, a claims team, so the risk management side of things. Then there was a group that did what I will call 
corporate law. So think of think, you know, real estate, your SEC work, because we're publicly traded. Um, uh, you know, that was a group. And then there was a group that that was employment and employment litigation. Um, long story short, when I showed up, we took all those different areas, pulled them together to make a cohesive legal function. So I have things in my function that are what some of um, folks would call the lawyers and the legal piece. Uh, and then I have some things in my function where we have people who handle claims or comp administration. The business continuity crisis management team is in my function. That everything I just described is about 85 people. Um, actual lawyers, if we were just talking lawyers, I think is 18, 18 lawyers. So that's the size of the group. Um, the pandemic, how did it change? Uh, well, let me just say this. During the pandemic, it was all hands on deck. So it didn't matter what kind of lawyer you were. Were you a contracts lawyer? Were you real estate? Were you employment? Were you privacy? Everybody had to jump in and, and help and do things that maybe they had no experience in because no one had ever experienced COVID before and a pandemic like that before. So we had lawyers, privacy lawyers, real estate lawyers. We had all kinds of lawyers getting on the phone and communicating with various city health officials, city officials, county officials, state officials, because everybody had a different role and um, needing to help us either keep our doors open or maybe we couldn't be open to the public in certain places, but we could fulfill orders out of those locations. Um, so it didn't matter what kind of lawyer you were, we were there to help the business keep um, uh, keep on <laughs> basically existing. And uh, so all of all my whole function had to jump in and help and, and do things that were not part of their day jobs. Um, eventually we got to go back to including our day jobs and, and doing, doing the things that we were expert in. My, my team, the only reason the size of my team has changed is because we moved something uh, that used to be in my function to, uh, to tech. And um, so my function actually went from 95 to about 85. Um, but that's that that's really uh, how the team sort of shifted, adapted, have have kind of come back together and and dealing with uh, the challenges of today versus the challenges of two years ago. Well, it's been really wonderful to see how Nordstrom was able to quickly adapt during the pandemic and come out strong after afterwards where other retailers have failed. Well, Anne, thank you so much for sharing your career journey with us. It's been uh, it, it's been really, really enlightening learning about your your legal career and your path to becoming a CLO. And I thank you again for, for your time and for chatting with me. Thank you so much, Lena. I really appreciate you um, inviting me to be part of your podcast and uh, just appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks so much for listening to GCs in the House. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me next time for an in-depth discussion with another general counsel. I welcome your feedback and recommendations for guests. You can reach me at lguo 
at mlaglobal.com. Please also reach out if you have any questions or comments about today's episode. Until next time.